broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. And hello, everyone, everywhere, not just Las Vegas, but most particularly if you're in Las Vegas because you are in our town listening on 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio. Welcome to those of you listening over at the405media.com as well. Glad to have you with us. Lots of news since we last had a Frittle show on uh, Thursday of last week, so we're going to jump right in here. We'll see how much we get to uh, today. Special welcome also to our summer missionaries. If you attend Liberty Baptist Church and you have got, not gotten to know this group yet, you should do so. We've got, um, I think it's about 10, about 10 incredible young people that are here giving their summer to help reach our city. So we thank them for that and look forward to seeing how God's going to use them this summer. Okay, Uh, let's start with the terror attack in London. Uh, We are in the month of Ramadan right now, and ISIS has called for increased attacks, and that is what we have been seeing. The latest episode occurring on the London Bridge. Two of the three killers have now been identified, CNN is reporting, and uh, these guys, it's it's amazing to me. Every time this happens, it's amazing to me, particularly uh, in the UK. Uh, They've named two of these individuals. They're close to releasing the name of the third. They believe they know the third. And when you go and you research these individuals... CNN's reporting that one of them was 27 years old, a British British citizen who was born in Pakistan. Uh, police, the MI5, and the UK's counterintelligence and its and their security agency were all familiar with him, but say there was no intelligence to suggest the weekend attack was being planned. This gentleman also worked for the public transportation system in London, so he was employed by the city. He was a trainee customer services assistant with London Underground for six months. Then uh, there's another guy that's been named Radun, who is 30 years old, who used the name Rakhid Al-Khadar, claimed to be Moroccan and Libyan. I don't understand how if you are a known threat to the police, MI5, counterintelligence, and the security agency... I don't get it. I just don't get it. This keeps happening, and we keep saying, oh, yeah, we, we knew that they were a potential threat, but uh, sorry about that. That, that. That's, you know when Orlando Bloom throws down the axe on Pirates of the Caribbean, he's like, that's not good enough. That's how I feel right now. What difference does it make? You're telling the families seven people were killed and 48 others wounded by these three madmen. And you're like, oh, you know, we did, we actually, we knew about them, but tolerance and stuff, so we can't just assume that they're going to do bad stuff, even though they're on our list of people that are probably going to do bad stuff. If, 
if I'm a family member of one of those victims, that's not cutting it for me. This has got to stop. The London Prime Minister after the attack, kudos, kudos to the London Prime Minister, Theresa May. I'm sorry, not London's Prime Minister. Prime Minister of the UK. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. It's because it's not. It's because my brain is still in early morning mode. It's it's warming up, though. It's warming up. Stick with me here. This is uh, The New York Times is reporting that Prime Minister Theresa May declared enough is enough and vowed on Sunday to conduct a sweeping review of Britain's counterterrorism strategy after three knife-wielding assailants unleashed an assault late Saturday night, the third major terrorist attack in the country in the last three months. At least seven people were killed and dozens more wounded, including 21 who remain in critical condition. As the men spread across or sped across London Bridge in a white van, ramming numerous pedestrians before emerging with large hunting knives for a rampage in the capital's borough market, a crowded night spot. In a matter of minutes, the three assailants were chased down by eight armed officers who fired about 50 rounds, killing the men who wore what appeared to be suicide vests, but subsequently proved to be fake. One member of the police also sustained non-fatal gunshot wounds. The assault came days before national elections this week and after the British government had downgraded the country's threat level to severe from critical, meaning that an attack was highly likely but not imminent. The Islamic State claimed responsibility for the attack, saying it had been carried out by a detachment of Islamic State fighters. Oh, but it gets worse. It gets worse. There is a video of the 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 man that led this attack Krams Shazud Boot and and Rashid Radon there's a video of these two guys along with about half a dozen others in a park a public park in London you, and you can see there are other people in the background it's daylight hours public place these guys set up and unfurl an ISIS flag an ISIS flag in a public park in London as they create a TV documentary called The Jihadis Next Door (laughs) how does this What level of insane political correctness do you have to reach that you think it is okay for an ISIS flag to be unfurled in a public park in London as part of a documentary that they're making called The Jihadis Next Door? To me, there are just about five million Potential reasons why you should put a stop to this and possibly, you know, take all these guys in. Because in case you haven't heard, ISIS is not exactly spreading a message of peace and love throughout the the world. No, their whole purpose is to kill everyone who doesn't agree with them. That includes Muslims that don't agree with them, Christians that don't agree with them, atheists, Buddhists, Jews. Pick your favorite religion or not religion 
doesn't matter. Unless you're following their particular brand of Islam, they want you uh, dead or subjected in some other way. These are the guys that are beheading people. These are the guys that are locking people in cages and setting them on fire or drowning them. I think there should be some kind of action that is taken if you're unfurling an ISIS flag in a public park in a Western or any other country, really, if you value freedom, clearly, ISIS is anti-freedom. If we haven't figured that out by now, we have major issues. But I'm glad that the Prime Minister in the UK is finally taking a stand and finally saying, you know what, enough is enough. Uh, The political correctness has to end because this has to stop. And she's right. This can't this cannot happen. I don't know how this is possible because in this video you can clearly see that there are other people at this park. And you know what? I'm not if you are in a park here in Las Vegas and there's a a bunch of guys and you unfurl an ISIS flag and then start filming around it, I'm calling the police. No apologies, I'm calling the police, and I hope that you go to jail. Because my thought is, you're probably not going to be spreading a message of unity and peace and harmony in our city. That's just a guess. But all these people are just, they're just going about their business, okay? You know, whatever those dudes are doing. No, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand how our mentality has reached this point in the world that we live in where terror is a real and present danger that you can just walk past, you know, oh, oh, there's like 10 guys with video cameras and an ISIS flag. They're probably harmless. So President Trump rightfully starts tweeting. Well, we can I'm not saying he rightfully is tweeting. I'm saying that what he's saying in his tweets is correct. He starts tweeting this. On the day of the attacks, he tweeted two things. He tweeted, we need to be smart, vigilant, and tough. We need the courts to give us back our rights. We need the travel ban as an extra level of safety. You may not like that. You may not think it's compassionate or whatever. But let me tell you, it's not compassionate. What's not compassionate is a group of people who want to kill everyone and everything that does not agree with them. That's not compassionate. That's evil. And if we need an increased... uh, uh, travel ban in order to help accomplish that, then that's what's going to have to happen. It's not closing our hearts to the world. And by the way, this isn't about kicking everybody out and not allowing anyone to take refuge here. No, that's not what the president is saying. Even the travel ban which he had enacted still allowed more refugees into our country than most other places in the world. You just, you know, we have to know that you don't want to come here to kill us. I think that's okay. I think that that is reasonable. In fact, not only is it reasonable, it's wise. The president also tweeted on the day of the attack. He said, whatever the United States can do to help out in London and the UK, we will be there. We are with you. God bless. It's good. 
The next day, he continued. He tweeted these things. He said, we must stop being politically correct and get down to the business of security for our people. If we don't get smart, it will only get worse. That is 100% true. He tweeted, at least seven dead and 48 wounded in a terror attack, and Mayor of London says there is no reason to be alarmed. That is a problem. The president is correct to call that out. The mayor of London, London's first uh, Muslim mayor, has been awful when it comes to the issue of terror. Refusing to call it what it is, refusing to acknowledge that it's a problem, refusing to say that there is an issue. I'm so glad the prime minister stood up and said something because London's mayor is living in a world of fantasy. President Trump continued tweeting. He said, do you notice we are not having a gun debate right now? That's because they used knives and a truck. Once again, he's correct. You don't need guns to commit uh, um, terror. And then he goes on to talk more about uh, the travel ban and says, in any event, we are extreme vetting people coming into the United States in order to help keep our country safe. The courts are slow and political. He's correct about that. And then he had one more for London's mayor. He said, pathetic excuse by London Mayor Sadiq Khan, who had to think fast on his no reason to be alarmed statement. The mainstream media is working hard to sell it. Then, just yesterday, one more tweet on this issue. He said, that's right, we need a travel ban for certain dangerous countries, not some politically correct term that won't help us protect our people. And again, the travel ban, as Trump wants it, does not stop us from taking actual refugees whose lives are in danger. What it does is stop us from having this open arms policy of send us your everyone. doesn't matter if you, you know, went to Syria for an extended period of time and have questionable things posted on the internet that's okay we still love you and want you to come here no it's not smart so that's what the Trump the president is saying he's saying we need to be smart about this and he's right so instead of London's mayor saying you know what we do need to do more we do need to step up we do need to uh, uh, stand against this and call this what it is no instead how does London's mayor respond He says, the president is coming to the UK and you know what, our our country needs to cancel his visit because, um, let me see here, Uh, he said, quote, I don't think we should roll out the red carpet to the president of the USA in the circumstances where his policies go against everything we stand for. Um... Okay, well, it's interesting to me that you didn't have a problem, apparently, with his visit prior to him tweeting these things, but now you do. So really, this isn't about 
whatever problems you think you may or may not have with his policies, this is a problem with him saying, we need to do more to protect our people. We need to be more thorough in the way that we vet and in who and in and in uh, the way that we process people that we allow into our country. That's what you apparently have a problem with. But it's your city that is being destroyed by these extremists. It's your people. You should be more concerned about your people and more outraged over what's happening to your people than about the president of another country saying we need to do more to protect people. So we'll see. We'll see what happens there. I I don't understand London's mayor. I really, really don't. (sighs) The, uh, The prime minister who said that the the country needs to do more and they're going to be uh, trying to stop making decisions based on political correctness. She actually, I, I commend her for it. I think it's, it may be too little too late in many ways, but hopefully it'll be a step in the right direction at least. But uh, when she was asked about the Twitter exchange then between the mayor and President Trump, she said, Sadiq Khan is doing a good job, and it's wrong to say anything else. He's doing a good job. Um, okay, and then the media is trying to say, well, Trump misquoted the mayor. He didn't actually say that there was no reason to be alarmed. Okay, well, let's read the direct quote then. The direct quote from the mayor of London is this. He made this. He made a statement uh, expressing his condolences, and he said that terrorists will not win. And then he said, "Quote: This is a direct quote. Londoners will see an increased police presence today, and over the course of the next few days, there's no reason to be alarmed." Now, what was the president's tweet? At least seven dead and 48 wounded in a terror attack, and Mayor of London says there is no reason to be alarmed. Well, clearly there is reason to be alarmed. This is the third time you've had a massive terror attack in your country in the last three months. There is reason to be alarmed. Now, they're saying, well, the mayor was talking about the police presence, and you shouldn't be alarmed about the police presence. No, you should be alarmed because the fact that there is this massive police presence says that there is massive issues where we are not being able or won't recognize the fact that people that we have on our watch list are potential threats and perhaps need to be monitored or in prison or something and they're out to kill us and they might kill us at any second. Clearly, there is reason to be alarmed. Now, all that said, we're left with, I I think the total is now 
uh, eight fatalities, 48 individuals wounded, innocent people who did nothing else except be in the wrong place at the wrong time, if you will. And while our, our countries, by our countries I mean the UK, the United States, all Western nations, need to do more when it comes to security, that's not something that I can do. Most likely, if you're listening to this program, it's probably not something that you personally can do. I'm guessing you personally don't have the power to increase the security in London or here in the United States or, or personally work on increasing the, uh, the security in our vetting process. I'm, I'm guessing you don't have that power. Maybe you do. If you do, I hope you will use it wisely. I don't. But what I do have is direct access to the God of the universe who loves every single person on this planet and who isn't willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And I know that he doesn't want these things to happen. I know that it breaks his heart when these things happen. And I don't know any of the people that died or were wounded in London, but he knows every single one of them. And he knows every single one of their family members, and he knows the hurt and the grief and the pain that they're going through right now. And so what I can do, and what you can do when stuff like this happens, and what we should do, is we should talk to him about it. Because if we're being honest, that's the only thing we really can do. Now, sure, we can send money to the Red Cross. We can donate blood. We can do things, some small things like that. And we should, when we, if we can, we should. But I believe, and some people will say, well, you can't really make a difference. I'm sorry, but I, that's the biggest way we can make a difference is through prayer. It, it, it irritates me so much when people are like, enough with the prayers, Stop saying you're praying for them. Do something about it. Well, the fact of the matter is, I can't do anything to stop a terror attack. Now, if it's happening right in front of me and I happen to have a, a concealed weapons permit and I have a weapon and then I can do something about it, then okay. But right now, there's nothing I can actually physically do about the terror attack in London. I just can't. Except, again, I could donate to the Red Cross, sure. I could donate blood, except I... I can't for having had malaria and Lyme's disease and they told me I, I can't give blood. So I, I can't do that. But what I can do is I can talk to the person that cares more about the people that are actually affected by this than anyone else on the planet who knows every single one of them by name, who knows every single one of their family members and who cares more about them than the mayor of London or President Trump or I ever could. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray specifically for those that are, are wounded and for the 21 people that are in critical condition. And I'm going to pray for their families. And I'm going to pray that God will somehow take this horrible, horrible thing that has been done and that somehow he will use it for good.
How could it possibly be good? I don't know. But that's what I'm going to pray for. Because my God is big. And my God does miracles. And my God does things that I can't explain and I don't understand. And so if anybody can comfort these families or heal these people that are in critical condition, he can. So that's what I'm going to do. And I hope you'll join me in doing the same. And welcome back. You're listening to KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. We have Heather Hopt is here with us today. She is the mother of what we're going to call three knights in training and a spunky little princess. She wants to raise kids who make a difference in this world. She's a writer, an educator, and a popular conference speaker whose goal is to inspire parents to pursue a loving and holistic approach to education and parenting. So Heather Thank you so much for being here today. I'm excited to have you with us. Yes, I am excited to be here with you. You have a brand new book coming out. It's called Knights in Training, 10 Principles for Raising Honorable, Courageous, and Compassionate Boys. Oh, I forgot to mention you also are a homeschooling mom. This is fantastic. I, I love you already, and I know nothing about you. <laughs> <laughs> But so you've got uh, you've got this knights in training book. I'm I'm guessing that writing this might have been inspired by your own sons. But what made you? Did you just wake up one day and think, hey, we need a book about how to raise raise boys? Um, no, it started out. I was reading books about knights to my sons mm-hmm. uh, six years ago, and I just noticed that they became mesmerized with the topic and they're waging sword battles all around me and I'm looking going, oh yeah, we're going to do chivalry too because I want my boys to know how to treat women. And so I started reading up because I'm a research nut and what I discovered about chivalry and blew me away. I always thought it was merely how a man treats a woman and it's so, so much more than that. It was an entire way of living and and as I read about this period of night training where they would really specifically and intentionally train these boys up not only to be warriors, but to be strong in heart as well, I was inspired and I knew I wanted to do that with my own boys. So I sort of experimented with it in our own home and my husband and I just really came to love this way of living. It gave our family a common language. Mm. I was able to speak boy language like they just yes. they got things but I was trying to communicate to them in a way that they hadn't before so I can tell my kids all day long my boys you know oh watch out you're hurting so-and-so's feelings and they just they don't care right that's not important to them and yet when I go to my boys now and I say you have the opportunity to be the hero but mm-hmm. a knight doesn't just wait for someone to come up and say hey there's a need here please help me no a knight is on the lookout where are the people that I can help? How can I step in and be the hero in this situation? And so it gave us a common language, gave my boys um, a sense of purpose, even now during their boyhood years. And so that's really, seeing that change in my family is what prompted me to want to write this book, to really flesh out these 10 aspects from the historic code of chivalry. What did it mean for the knights of old, and how can we help our boys walk this out, not only now, but with an eye towards the future as they grow up to become men. 
I love this because it's so refreshing. You know, we live in a world where oftentimes what we hear about boys, uh, sadly, is that, you know, boys are hyper, boys are fidgety, boys need medication more than girls, they need to be taught to be calm, or, you know, for so many parents, it's just easier to throw their boys in front of a video game than to actually work with them on being chivalrous, if you will. So you mentioned it, and you, you discuss this in depth in your book. You talk about the history of knights, and specifically the knights' uh, code of chivalry. Um, and, and these principles for raising honorable, courageous, and compassionate boys. So it's honor, courage, and compassion. Why did you choose those three things specifically? Because um, that really, what that's what comes out. Those are the deeper things that undergird the Knight's Code of Chivalry. It was a way of living with honor. It was doing the right thing because, because you are a strong man. You are a strong person, and you're not going to take the path of a coward. Mm. And so the code embodied a sense of honor and a sense of respect for other people that was really deep-seated. And it recognized humanity's temptation to really get it wrong and the fact that we're going to mess sure. up. Yeah. And so it really the purpose was to paint an ideal. And so it was giving boys and young men something to look forward to, but even... You know, the grizzled knights who were battle-weary, it was a way to call them back and say, hey, no, you're not supposed to be this. You're not supposed to go crazy and use your strength to prey on other people. No, this is the ideal. And so it gave them a vision and sort of a sense of bringing them back. And that's really it, right? Especially with boys is, is presenting that vision because they're the ones that they want to conquer the backyard and to fight off the bad guys lurking down by the creek and get extra muddy while they're doing it. So, and their imagination are just so powerful and fascinating. And I think if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is parents can encourage their boys to use that imagination, not simply just explore and to play, which are, are good things for boys to do, but while they're doing that exploring and that playing, to use that as a way to inspire them to be more than just little boys, you know, maybe throwing mud at each other, but to be little knights and little heroes while they're doing so. Right. Right. To recognize the value in this play, to recognize the value in the fact that boys can't sit still. Mm. So instead of treating the effective girls going, no. They're wired differently. Yes. And going with the way they're wired, embracing who they are, um, and then helping to civilize it. And so they need that <laughs> civilizing touch. They need that vision for what yes. it's supposed to be. So we don't want to squash it and say, and invalidate what they want and how they're wired, but we want to give it purpose and meaning. Yeah. An- another thing you talk about, um, as you mentioned, uh, cultivating the the man in the boys, if you will, is that little boys, they, they can be crude. And if that's not something that's, that's addressed or taught out of them, if you will, um, it can become a problem later in life. So how, how do com- parents combat that, that crudeness, if you will, that some little boys tend to have while still cultivating the, the boy spirit and the nightness, if you will? Yeah. Well, we teach, that we teach them what I like to call, and I'm my voice, situational awareness. Mm. So there's a time and a place for things, and little boys need to learn how, they need to develop the self-regulation skills to know when to turn it off. Yes. And so sometimes when my boys are sneaking, I'm like, you can take that outside. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can go talk like that in the backyard. 
um, but not here in front of mom, not at the dinner table. And mm-hmm. so we set up boundaries. So it's not like we're saying you can never do this. Yes. And, and we recognize that just little boys are wired this way. And so we don't totally squash it, but we civilize it. And we go, there's, there's time, a time and a place mm-hmm. to do this. And so we, we help them start to discern when are those times and places and they're not able to discern that when they're little they need us telling them no you may not do that at the dinner table no you may not do that in front of grandma no you may not do that in front of dad's boss yes (laughs) so that when they grow up they don't go to some fancy dinner like i my mom used to work with law students and she's had students who have lost jobs because no one told them that when they go to these dinners with these law firms that they're actually that's part of the interview process. They're mm-hmm. watching how you conduct yourself in these formal dinner occasions. And if we're not giving our kids the skills to walk in these different situations and be able to read these scenarios, we're doing them a huge disservice. Yes. Yep. Totally agree. So, so speaking of, of thinking towards the future and and cultivating that manhood in our boys and getting getting some of the rough edges smoothed out if you will while still encouraging them to to be boys and to to become little heroes if you will what what are some practical ways that parents can do that like uh, for example i know that one thing you mentioned uh, in your book is why maybe parents shouldn't have their little boys watching frozen on a regular basis why is yeah. that well, we, we want to be intentional with what we're exposing our kids to because, like it or not, we become what we, what we immerse ourselves in. Mm. And so I make an appeal in my book to have what I call mindful media consumption. And so it goes beyond just what is this rated mm-hmm. and am I going to let my kids watch this? Am I okay with this violence? Am I okay with this level of sex? But actually taking it a step further and going, what are the messages that this is communicating to my children what it what messages is this communicating to us as people and really taking time to think about that to help our kids process that and then looking and stuff that sends messages that don't line up with the vision that we have for our boys setting limits on that so we watch frozen but in reality it, it doesn't depict men well it depicts them as either sort of bumbling and lazy and not quite all there or they're <laughs> angry and they're yes. evil mm-hmm. and, and so there's not a male role model in that movie that that little boys would want to aspire to be like and sure. we want to give our sons something to aim for and if the only thing we're giving them are you know bumbling dads and men that just aren't quite there and men that constantly need a woman to come in and save the day for them they're not going to have these dreams and aspirations. They're going to see, oh, there's no need for me. And they're going to just sort of zone out and go find other ways where they can find meaning and purpose. And video games is one of those things that is filling that void yeah. of giving boys a sense of of empowerment and I can be the hero. And that's just, that's so wrong when we have these amazing young men checking out and not engaging in the real world. Yeah, yeah, that's that's such a good, really, really good point because we we want our boys to become men of courage and men of chivalry, and it's it's built right into them. They're wired to battle the bad guys and to be the hero, um, 
it, but it seems like our culture just has this almost a war against boys, if you will, where you know we would say if a little boy picks up a stick and uses it as a pretend weapon, that's not okay. And I, you know, it's a fine line there to walk that right because in in some instances yeah. that isn't going to be okay. But at the same time, you know, it's it's not inherently evil for a little boy to pick up a stick and, and start using it as a weapon. That's just the way they're wired. So how do we find that right. balance? Well, part of it comes back to giving them good stories. And mm. so if we're giving them good stories and good heroes, they're going to want to emulate the good heroes. If we're not giving them good heroes, <laughs> they're going to want to emulate whatever they're seeing. Um, sure. so I saw that we watched Tangled last year, and uh-huh. my boys sat around and they started pretending that they were robbers. Yes. And some people. And I, I stepped in, like, whoa, why, why are you doing this? And they're like, well, we're good robbers. Like, explain that to me. Um, and it's just, so what this movie sent conflicting messages to my son. Sure. Um, what was good, what was bad, it really muddied those waters, and it was confusing. And so we want to look and go, give our kids good stories and then we want to not be afraid of their battle mindset and recognize that boys are they want to defend and protect and they want to be the hero and it's in their pretend play especially when they're little that they start working out can i be the hero how could that look like and so they're really shaping their moral imagination as they see some of these good stories and they take that into their play and they work out what does it mean to be the hero? Would I be brave enough to lay down my life for Mm -hmm. what I believe in or to protect someone else? And so recognizing that it's not the battle mindset that's evil, it's sort of what we're doing with those weapons and what we're doing in our pretend play that matters. And so keeping an eye out and setting some appropriate boundaries, but really celebrating this aspect of boyhood and manhood that wants to be strong and that wants to save the day. Yes, yes. And so so talking about, you know, it's you, you talk about this in your book, too. It's a matter of why are they having the battle? Why are we fighting this fight? And you talk about little boys and their need to learn how to disagree. And you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that boys and girls are very different. And this is one area that boys and girls are extremely different. Settle disagreements in completely different ways. You know, boys, they can just punch each other, shake hands, and it's pretty much over. But girls, right. that, that wrong, it just festers under the surface and they may say sorry on the outside, but three weeks later, they're still not going to play with Susie because we're mad at her. Even if we can't remember what it is exactly that we're mad about, we just know that we're mad at her. But since we're specifically talking about boys today, why is it important that boys learn how to have a disagreement? Is, is it because of that that need to, to be the be this chivalrous one and to be the one that's defending and protecting? Is, is that why it's so important that they learn how to disagree well? Yeah, well, I mean, I think as a culture at large, we've lost the ability to mm, disagree with true. one another and to be civil true. about it. So I don't think this is gender specific. Sure. But how we communicate to our boys versus girls is going to look a little different. And so recognizing that boys can't totally compete and beat the tar out of one another and be best buds because of it um, is something that's just so unique and so strange <laughs> to those of us on the other yes. side of the spectrum. Um, I never go beat at my my girlfriends and then like right. hug afterwards. But right. not what we do. Um, but giving them, helping them understand how to resolve conflict. Because a boy, women tend to we go to our words, and boys tend to go to their fists when mm-hmm. they're angry. And so giving them tools 
for how to work that out and how to work that out in healthy ways um, takes time and effort from us as parents and the adults in a child's life to help them really work that out so that they can recognize that and be honest with themselves so that they can then be honest with other people. Yes. Uh, we're getting uh, we're getting close to the end, but I have I have what I think is the most important uh, question for last, and that's in regards to the most important thing we c- which we can instill in our children, boys or girls, and that would be, of course, introducing them to Jesus Christ. But we can't stop there. Successful Christian parenting isn't simply getting a child to a point of belief and praying a prayer. It's an awesome moment, but it's just the beginning. It's helping our children grow in their faith right. and understand how that relationship with Jesus should be guiding and directing everything that they're doing and how they're interacting with one another. So what are some ways that parents can help uh, boys in particular to learn to do that, to respond to situations in a manner that's that's pleasing to Jesus? Yeah, well, the most important thing I think we can do, aside from introducing our children to Jesus, is letting them in on the mission that God has for us, that mm. we are kingdom people and that we are called for a work here on this earth and that we are called to push back darkness and to step into situations and to shine light. And so we do that by connecting our boys with this greater sense of purpose. And I do so with specifically with our code of chivalry by pointing out that the first aspect of the code of chivalry is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And once you have that down, boys, that is the, that undergirds everything else. Mm-hmm. That is why you speak truth. That is why you step up and you respect the women in your life and you care for and protect them because you recognize they're created in the image of God. And so when you understand that I love God and that the outflow of that is that you love others, then we start looking for how does that look like practically um, for you as boys and and really connecting, living out the life that God has for them. Yeah, and I, I won't give it away because it's 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 in the book. So we want people to buy the book, but you're you're exactly right. It's the, the code of chivalry, which is really very neat and very relatable, I think, especially for, for young men in today's society. But that's that is number one on the list. And I think there's ten things on the list, is that correct? And it parallels yes. what's happening in your book. Yeah. So there's ten things. I saw it earlier today and it was I read through them and I thought, wow, that's just that's just really, really good. And it's they're things that are simple and achievable, but allow boys to develop and cultivate that boyhood so that they can grow up to be uh, chivalrous, courageous young men. And I think it's it's fantastic. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you have written this. Um, it con- Your book releases on May 30th. Is that correct? Yes. And I'm assuming it's available in bookstores everywhere? Bookstores everywhere. Yes that congratulations that is a that is that is very exciting and where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your ministry yeah you can find me at my website heatherhops.com that's h-a-u-p-t and so i have just back articles there and you can find links to my social media i especially love to hang out over on instagram or on facebook um and yeah i just i love to encourage and equip and remind parents to, to stay strong in the work that they're doing and to really have that long-term picture because their days were in the trenches and it's just rough. Yeah. And so it's helpful to step back and go, no, we're, we're part of the bigger thing here than just the craziness of today. Yes. 
Yes. Well, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. You can find Heather on her website at heatherhop.com. It's uh, Heather, H-A-U-P as in Paul, T as in Tom, dot com. And her new book is Nights in Training, 10 Principles for Raising Honorable, Courageous, and Compassionate Boys. Heather, thank you again. It's been a privilege talking with you today. And uh, I, I hope your book is a bestseller because I think it's something that our culture desperately, desperately needs today. Amen. Yes. All right, everyone. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio, from Liberty Baptist Church here in Las Vegas. This day in history, on this day in history, June 6th. Is it ringing a bell? It should. June 6th has become synonymous with... D-Day. D-Day is a term which is routinely used in the military just to signify uh, the day that an operation will take place. But it has become synonymous with this date, June 6, because on June 6, 1944, during World War II, Allied powers crossed the English Channel and landed on the beaches of Normandy, France, France, which began uh, the liberation of Western Europe from Nazi control during World War II. Within three months after that invasion, the northern part of France was freed and the invasion force was preparing to enter Germany, where they would then meet up with Soviet forces who were closing in from the east. History.com says, with Hitler's armies in control of most of mainland Europe, the... the Europe... no... Still early, if you're listening to the live broadcast. Most of mainland Europe, the Allies knew that a successful invasion of the continent was central to winning the war. Hitler knew this too and was expecting an assault on the northwestern, uh, on northwestern Europe in the spring of 1944. He hoped to repel the Allies from the coast with a strong counterattack that would delay future invasion attempts, giving him time to throw the majority of his forces into defeating the Soviet Union in the east. Once that was accomplished, he believed an all-out victory would soon be his. On the morning of June 5, 1944, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander of Allied Forces in Europe, gave the go-ahead for Operation Overlord, the largest amphibious military operation in history. On his orders, 6,000 landing craft ships and other vessels carrying 176,000 troops began to leave England for the trip to France. That night, 822 aircraft filled with parachutists headed for drop zones in Normandy. An additional 13,000 aircraft were mobilized to provide air cover and support for the invasion. By dawn on June 6th, 18,000 parachutists were already on the ground. The land invasions began at 6.30 a.m. The British and Canadians overcame light oppositions to capture gold, Juno, and sword breaches. So did the Americans at Utah. The task was much tougher at Omaha Beach, however, where 2,000 troops were lost, and it was only through the tenacity and quick-wittedness of troops on the ground that the objective was achieved. By day's end, 155,000 Allied troops, American, British, and Canadians, had successfully stormed Normandy's beaches. For their part, the Germans suffered from confusion in the ranks and the absence of celebrated Commander Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, who was away on leave. At first, Hitler, believing that the invasion was designed to distract the Germans from a coming attack north of the Seine River, refused to release nearby divisions to join the counterattack, and reinforcements had to be called from further afield, which caused delays. He also hesitated in calling for armored divisions to help in the defense. In addition, the Germans were hampered by effective Allied air support, which took out many key bridges and forced the Germans to take long detours, as well as efficient Allied naval support, which helped protect advancing Allied troops. 
Though it did not go off exactly as planned as later claimed by British Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, for example, the Allies were able to land only fractions of the supplies and vehicles they had intended in France, D-Day was a decided success. In a sense... It turned the tide of the war. By the end of June of 1944, the Allies had 850,000 men and 150,000 vehicles in Normandy and were poised to continue their march across Europe. The heroism and bravery displayed by troops from the Allied countries on D-Day has served as inspiration for several films, most famously The Longest Day and Saving Private Ryan. It was also depicted in the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. Incredible Incredible day in history. 175 Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, are airdropped behind enemy lines. The heroism and the stories from D-Day are incredible and amazing. When I was uh, growing up, we were homeschooled, and my dad, every June 6th, we would watch The Longest Day. It was it's, The Longest Day is an older film. It was made in 1962. It's in black and white. It has all kinds of, of big name actors from that time. John Wayne, Henry Fonda. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. It's, it's a fairly accurate description of the historical timeline of events, so it gives you a good picture of, of what was going on without being um, as graphic as, say, a, a Saving Private Ryan or many of the more modern uh, film. So he, he would sit us down and we would watch that. I don't think we would watch all of it. I think there were some parts that were still uh, fast forward. But for the most part, it was um, it was a film that we could watch and then we would discuss and we would talk about. And I, I really appreciate that about, uh, about my dad. Was, that was something that he would do with us when it was historical days. We would talk about it. He would take us to the actual places if they were places we could go to. Obviously, he never uh, took us all to France to see Normandy, but watching The Longest Day was something we could do together. Going to the Gettysburg battlefield was something we could do together. And so on days that commemorated things in history, he would take us to do things because he knew it was important for us to know what had happened in the past because those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. And so I would encourage you, teach your kids history. Teach them about things that have happened. Teach them about inconvenient truths. And I don't have time, because I'm already out of time, to talk about things like uh, like statues that are being torn down of Robert E. Lee and, and museums that are being shut down in the South because they have a Confederate flag on display. These are things that we should know and that your children should know about. So I'd encourage you, no one else is going to teach your kids about history, particularly controversial history, and I would encourage you to do that. It's important for your kids to know where we've been, where we've come from, so we can better understand where we're going. And if you have a chance to watch The Longest Day today, I don't know if it's up on Netflix. I would hope that it would be, but uh, that is a film that your children can get a, a good picture of what happened on this day without it being something that is... Um, um, it's not a modern war movie. It's a war movie that was made in 1962. So if you've ever seen, like... Um, What's the other one? Sands of Iwo Jima or things like that. They're they're older war movies, so they're still depicting war. And I would still be, uh, you know, use use your judgment. I wouldn't let your real young children watch it, but your, um, some of your older children, especially, I think it would be it would be good for you to do that potentially, or at least at the very least review some of the stories from today. Review the account of 
today. June 6, 1944, D-Day, the turning point of World War II. And maybe visit Grandpa or Great-Grandpa if he's got some World War II stories. Remember, remember what happened and remember our heroes. Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to KVXL 101.1 FM LP Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Join us Wednesday night for church at 7 p.m. We would love to have you here. And we're going to end today with the Ball Brothers and It's About the Cross. See you tomorrow, everyone.